just sit in the congregation after serving us so faithfully. It's a wonderful day. Our passage this morning is from Isaiah 42, verses 10 through 17. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and, all, and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Sela sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, He stirs up His zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. In the past that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to understand this, your word, that you would show us the truth of your gospel and who Jesus is in it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a, a fun passage this morning. It's a little unusual. Some of the imagery is a little unusual, especially the imagery of God being like a woman in labor. So I did want to assure you that I did contact my mother this morning and have a conversation with her because she has more experience in this area than I do, a lot more experience. Um, so I just, I just mentioned that at the beginning to say, you know, just so as not to plagiarize, and uh, if you appreciate anything this sermon, is you know, probably uh, due to her, and I, I take responsibility for, for anything wrong I say, but just, just to let you know about that. Um, we're going to have three points this morning as we look at this passage. Uh, First, I want to have a little introductory point to help us think about this passage. Um, so our first point is going to be God speaks in metaphors. God speaks in metaphors. Our second point is going to be God breaks his silence. And our third point is going to be the world is called to praise. I'm going to come back to the verses at the beginning of the passage at the end because they're the call to us for how we should respond uh, to what we learn about God. So we're going to see God speaks in metaphors. God breaks his silence, and the world is called to praise. Okay, the first point, God speaks to us in metaphors. I, I, I chose this point uh, as an introduction to our passage to give us some context as we go into the images here, because God is described in this passage in a very human way, isn't he? I wonder if that raises some questions for you. I mean, verse 13 says that the Lord is like a mighty man who stirs up his zeal. God is psyching himself up for battle. And then in verse 14, God says that he's been holding his emotions in 
not saying anything, but now he's going to scream, gasp, and pant like a woman in labor. We're going to get into what all that means in the next point. But I want us to stop and take note of the rather remarkable fact that God describes himself in this way at all. It's an intensely emotional and even physical description. But how does that fit with what we learn about God in Sunday school? Kids, do you know the answer to this question? Have you learned this in Sunday school? What is God? I, I can hear it. I, I can hear some of you. Some of you know the answer to this. What is God? God is a spirit and has not a body like men. And our reading from the Westminster Confession, we said that God is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. God doesn't have a body. He's not divisible into parts. And he doesn't have passions. Now, we need to be careful here with the word passions because it's a technical theological word. Um, it's not passion in the sense of the modern sense of intense emotion or ardent feeling that we're denying, but it's this sense of emotions insofar as they're finite, imperfect, and creaturely. That's what we mean when we say God doesn't have passions. And there's three main aspects we're thinking of and denying here. First, suffering. God can't suffer because he enjoys perfect eternal blessedness in himself. Second, helplessness or passivity. You know when an emotion kind of takes you over and you, you can't control it. Well, we don't want to say that about God because he's all-powerful. And third, change. You know, some emotions, they just come over you so quickly, and then they're just gone so fast. But we know God doesn't change, so that can't happen to him. So that's what we mean when we say that God has no passions. And I know sometimes that kind of old-fashioned language in the confessions can be, you know, a little bit annoying. Um, you think, well, you know, why can't it just be in modern English? But I'm not sure we do have a word for this in modern English. It is, by the way, though, in the Bible. In Acts 14 and 15, Paul and Barnabas go to this group of uh, uh, Greek pagans in Lystra and Derby, and they say to them that they are humans of like passions with, with these, these people, but that God is not like that. Um, so our, our confession is including a word here that goes all the way back to um, a word that Paul and Barnabas used themselves. And anyway, if you think a little bit about it, it makes sense that God wouldn't have emotions in the way that we do, doesn't it? Uh, if he doesn't have a body. Because the way we experience emotions is very physical. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. When I get angry, I feel this pressure in my chest, and I feel the heat in my face. Um, when I feel joy, I feel physically lighter. Maybe I feel a little tingly. When I'm sad, I'm, you know, my head hangs low and my arms are heavy. I mean, it's very, our emotions are very physical, and there must be more to them than that. There's stuff going on in my, my mind and my soul, but it's really hard to imagine emotions without imagining how we feel them physically. And if God doesn't have a body, then he must not feel emotions in that way. But does that mean that God just doesn't care then. If he's perfectly happy, this immutable spirit, is he just distant from our pain and suffering? I think that would be falling off the other side of the horse, wouldn't it? I mean, surely we should believe that God is more perfectly loving and caring than we are. But because he's a very different kind of being than us, it's hard for us to imagine what that could look like for him. You know, John Calvin says in his commentary on these verses, God loves very differently from man, that is, more fully and perfectly. 
This is all very hard to understand, I know. But the good news is that God speaks to us in metaphors, because we can't understand what it's like for Him to have these emotions. He communicates Himself to us in a human way that we can understand. You know, God says in Hosea 12.10 that when He spoke to the prophets, He spoke in parables, or we could translate it, He gave likenesses, or maybe even uh, translate it, I gave likenesses of Myself. God uses figures and images and metaphors to help us understand who He is. If we pay close attention to our passage today, we see the word like. Isaiah says that God is like a man of war or like a woman in labor. And I know for you English majors, you're going to say, well, that's a simile, not a metaphor, because it's a comparison with like or as, but it's the same basic idea. It's a, it's a figurative image. God is using a powerful image to help us understand something we couldn't understand otherwise. Now, I know that we're in deep waters here trying to understand God. After all, Isaiah just told us only a chapter ago that that we are like nothing compared to God, that we're like these little insects hopping around compared to how big He is. How could we hope to understand Him? The good news is that God bends down and speaks to us like little children. He uses words that we're able to understand. So if you're tempted to be discouraged this morning because God seems really hard to understand, don't be. God uses simple words by which we can know Him and love Him, even if we can never fully comprehend Him. God gets down on our level, like someone speaking to a child. There's, there's one other thing I want to say to help us frame this passage before we dive right in. Um, and that is, you know, a lot of imagery about God in the Bible is stereotypically male imagery, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever noticed this. You know, God's a king, God's a father, God's a warrior. And sometimes it might make us wonder if God is male. Um, a female friend of mine once asked me, you know, is my husband more in the image of God than I am because he's a man and I'm a woman? Uh, and I think the answer has to be no. I mean, strictly speaking, God is beyond biological sex. He's neither male nor female. As the church father Jerome said, there is no sex in the Godhead. But since men and women are both in God's image, then we both reflect the reality of who God is. That's why I think it's important to highlight those places in Scripture where God describes himself using stereotypically female imagery. And we find that in this passage. God not only uses a stereotypically male metaphor— a mighty warrior, he also uses the image of a woman in labor to describe himself. I I chose as our Old Testament reading in Deuteronomy 32, which I I got a little excited and put it all in there and then had to shorten it down. (laughs) I I get a little carried away sometimes with these passages I love, but I I picked one that, a passage that has a lot of this imagery for God. And in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 32, it says that God is Israel's father, But in verse 13, it says that he will suckle Israel, using a verb specifically used for a nursing mother. And then in verse 18, it says that he gave birth to Israel. Another example of this imagery would be Proverbs 8, where wisdom is described as a daughter to whom the Lord gave birth. Uh, We could talk about further examples, but the main point is God created us male and female. Part of our human finitude is that we're limited to imaging God in a particular way. But God himself is is beyond male and female. So this language of male and female itself is also a metaphor that we use to describe God. 
All right, thanks for bearing with me. With all that in context, let's actually dive into what our passage is saying. Point two, God breaks his silence. God breaks his silence. Verse 13, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. So God's like a mighty warrior, and he's like a woman in labor. Now, one thing both of these metaphors have in common is that they're both very loud. This is really rather a contrast to the previous passage where the servant was very quiet. We met this servant who who doesn't lift up his voice or call aloud. But now suddenly we're in a very loud passage. Um, And in both cases, both the warrior and the woman, this is a change. The focus is on God launching into activity after a time of silence. The warrior is stirring himself up, psyching himself up for combat. This is This is like the the riders of Rohan arriving at Helm's Deep over the hill, and it's the time for them to charge, and that's when you start yelling, right? And then in verse verse 14, God says that he has kept quiet for a long time. You get the sense almost that it's difficult for him. Like he's wanted to shout about what's happening to his people, but he's had to hold himself back. Again, I think we're talking in metaphors here. But the point to get across is that God has not been unfeeling or uncaring towards his people. Uh, You know, they've gone through this tragedy where Jerusalem has been conquered and they've been hauled off to exile, and God has had his reasons for letting it happen. He's been disciplining them for their sins, but that doesn't mean that he stopped caring for them while all this has been going on. And now the moment for deliverance has come. God is like a woman in labor. In other words, the time has come for a new birth. And when you're pregnant, you have to wait a long time to meet the new baby. Um, Kids, do you know how long it takes a baby to be born? Anyone? It takes nine months. Does that sound like a really long time to wait? Certainly sounds like it to me. You have to wait a long time until you get to meet a new brother or sister, a new child. And even then, you don't actually know exactly what day this is going to (laughs) happen. I kept my mother waiting for a long time. I was a late baby, and and she had to wait until the time came for me to arrive. But then when the right time does come, and you go into labor, and now God is going to scream and gasp and pant. What is this communicating, this image? I think part of it, at least, is God's determination and drive to make the deliverance for his people happen. As I was talking about this with my mother, she talked about um, definitely the discomfort in pregnancy and the pain and suffering in childbirth, but also this excitement to meet a new child. And then the joy you have over a new child that makes it all worth it. And she thinks that her dogs have the same sort of experience. You know, she breeds, uh, breeds spaniels, and she says, you know, like, The labor is really difficult, but once they have that new little puppy, it's all about the puppy, and they seem to forget about everything that went before. She also wanted me to mention very specifically that it's not always like that with a new child. You know, we live in a fallen world, and sometimes when a new baby comes along, you don't feel those kinds of endorphins, and it can be very difficult. And I I think that's a good reminder to have. I know some of us uh, in our congregation celebrate Childless People's Day today, so I don't want to make it sound like uh, only um, motherhood and childbearing are valuable, and we live in a fallen world where not everybody participates in that. 
And yet when it does happen, it's such a joyful thing. And it's significant that God uses that to describe himself with his people. That joy that makes you endure through great suffering for this little child. That's how God feels about his people. I think something else that there is in common between like a screaming warrior charging into the foe and a screaming woman in labor is that there's this sense of drawing all, all your energy and zeal to get the job done. This isn't like in an office where, you know, if you put your form in my box, I'll get around to it. Or, or like, you know, the contractor is going to come sometime between 9 and 5 on a Wednesday. No, this is, this is happening right now. There's this sense of imminence. Some scholars have also pointed out how God uses the language of lament here and describes it to himself in verse 14 when he says, For a long time I've held my peace. I've kept still and restrained myself. This is language that people would often use to ask God questions. God, why are you restraining yourself? Why are you silent? Why are you not answering us? I think that helps us understand the context in which God is saying this. God's people are wondering why he's been silent to them for so long. Maybe they've struggled with that reality and asked themselves, has God finally given up on us? Has he abandoned us? We haven't heard from him in so long. Maybe that's why God uses such vivid and unusual language here. He wants these images to be impressed upon our minds. He wants his people to know that first, that he wasn't silent because he didn't care about them. And second, that the time when he is going to act is now here. All of his power and zeal are going to be exercised to deliver them. Well, then we see verses 15 and 16 describe this deliverance. First, it's described as a terrible and destructive power that dries out the wilderness. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. God's power is this unstoppable destructive force. I wonder if there might not even be an allusion to the idea of God's spirit here. You know, in some of the other songs in the Bible, like the song of Moses, um, it's the breath of God's nostrils that blasts the Red Sea dry so the people can walk across. We find the same language in David's song in Psalm 18. So maybe the gasping and panting is assuming that the image of God's Spirit is God's breath. Uh, we, we saw that's a picture for God's Spirit, is breath or wind, which is powerfully effective. If you'll pardon me mixing our metaphors together here, God is like a mama bear. You don't want to get between a mama bear and her cubs. God's power is destructive towards anybody who would set themselves up as an enemy for his people, all the people who would oppress them, but it's redemptive for those who trust in him. Verse 16 tells us that God will guide the blind in straight paths, that he will turn their darkness into light. And then God reassures them of this promise at the end of the verse. And I would translate this as future, actually, a little differently than our translation here. These are the things that I will do, and I will not forsake them. Okay, so how do, we, how do we apply this point to ourselves this morning? Well, I think there's a deeply comforting word here uh, from God, especially when we don't feel a sense of close communion with him. Have you ever had this experience uh, in your Christian walk 
um, where you, you don't experience God's love, where it feels like he's very far away. Maybe you, you try to read your Bible, but it just feels like a drudgery. Maybe you come to church, and it, it, it feels like a chore. I think most Christians have this experience at some point. On the one hand, our union with Christ, that connection we receive when we believe and trust in him, is unbreakable. Nothing in creation can tear that apart. But that doesn't mean that we don't sometimes lack experience of that reality. Our communion with God, our experience of fellowship with him can fluctuate at different times. God may withdraw the light of his countenance from us, as the Westminster Confession says. It may feel like a cloud is hiding God's love for us. And God may allow that to happen for various reasons. It's not always because of sin. By the way, Job suffers this feeling of estrangement, and it has nothing to do with his sin. We could say the same for Jesus. Uh, God may bring trials into our lives in order to teach us something or strengthen us in some way. But sometimes God does let us feel estrangement from him as a consequence for our sin, as a way of his loving discipline to prod us into repentance. I wonder if any of us here this morning are in such a period of testing, a time where you don't feel God's love for you, a time where you feel distant and cut off from God. Well, if if that's where you are this morning, then you need to know two things. First of all, you need to know what God's silence means, because it's tempting to think that It means this, that God's saying, like, I'm ignoring you because you have sinned. My love is conditional. You've sinned, therefore I've stopped loving you. Maybe if you get your acts together, then I'll start loving you again. And that's not what it means. And we see even this passage, that even though Israel experienced this trial as a discipline for their sin, it didn't mean God had stopped loving them. Even in the midst of his silence, it's like God was holding himself back from speaking. That love was always present. And that's true for you too. Even if you're undergoing this trial and it feels like God is distant from you, it does not mean that God's love for you has ceased. It does not mean that your union with Christ is voided. God remains faithful even in such difficult times. The second thing you need to know is what God's zeal for your deliverance is. You need to see this God who cares passionately about you, who comes to deliver you, who, who, who screams and cries out like a warrior rushing in to deliver his allies or like a woman bringing forth her child. That's how committed God is to our deliverance and our salvation. And even if it doesn't feel that way, It's the truth in Christ if you're trusting in him. So there's a comfort here for those of us who are in a dark time of the soul. God's word to us showing us in a very colorful way that we can understand how much and how deeply God cares for us. That's point two. Now point three, the world is called to praise. The world is called to praise. And here we're going to skip back to the beginning, verses 10 to 12. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. 
You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Sela sing for joy, let them shout from the top of the mountains, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. So when God does something new, it calls for a new song. And this language of a new song, it shows up a few times in the Bible. When God does some new act of redemption, God's people have to sing about it in a new way. Um, think of Moses and Miriam after they cross the Red Sea, singing the song of praise to God. Actually, that's the first time it happens. I don't know if you ever noticed this. Abraham and the patriarchs, no, no, no singing. The only song in the Bible we've had so far is a self-glorifying, violent, misogynistic rhyme by a guy called Lamech. That's the, first, that's the only music we've had in the Bible so far about how great he is and how much he's going to you know, attack anybody who fights against him. But now, with this deliverance at the Red Sea, we have the first worship music ever as Moses and Miriam and the people of Israel sing this song of deliverance. And it's a pattern that continues whenever God delivers his people in a great way. There's a new song that comes along with it. And you can see some of the different psalms in the Psalter mention the context in which they were written. Well, now, Isaiah tells us, God is going to do something new. He's going to do new things, and so that calls for a new song. But look who's invited to sing. It's the ends of the earth. Those who go down to the sea are told to travel and spread it. Uh, the coastlands or the islands are called to sing. I think I mentioned la last time I preached that the, the islands just refers to everything over there beyond the sea if you're in Egypt or Israel. So that includes America, by the way. That's us. Um, and then we hear about Kedar in the wilderness. I don't know if you've heard much of, about Kedar, but they're an Arab kingdom who controlled the whole northern Arabian Peninsula all the way to the border with the Babylonians. Um, their queens waged war against the Assyrian kings, Sennacherib and Ashurbanipal, so they were kind of a big deal. Sometimes I think our Bible maps shortchange the Arabian Peninsula. I don't know. Maybe you can look in your Bible map when you get home and see if you can find the Kedarite cities of Duma, Tima, and Dedan. I only found one Bible in my office that has all three of them. So it's a big deal. And then Sela was this mighty stronghold of the Edomites, carved into towering, impregnable rock, you know, when Isaiah says, let them shout out from the tops of the mountains, that, there it is, right up on the tops of the mountains. He pictures the Edomites worshiping God. Now, why would he mention these places? Why? Well, I mean, Kedar and Selah, they're both located in the desert to the southeast of Israel. Traditionally, that's where God comes from to rescue his people in poetry in the Bible. That might be part of it. But I think it's significant that Kedar and Edom are also kingdoms that like Israel and Judah, were conquered and subjugated by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And in Isaiah and Jeremiah, we have oracles that talk about how this is going to happen to them. That just like Israel, they're going to be conquered. But now, they're going to be delivered as well. As a matter of fact, the Kedarites were actually... Uh, they did actually get along with the Persians. It was a change for them. They actually helped King Cambyses invade Egypt. So there may be some historical basis for this, that their fortunes were restored along with God's people. 
But what's so striking about it is that it's not God's people singing the song of praise, but Gentile nations the world over. And you think about the people on the, the hilltop of Sela praising God. You know, there are actually places of worship carved into the rock at Sela, but people weren't praising the Lord there. They were praising very different gods. This vision Isaiah has is that this act of deliverance is not only going to make God's people, the religious insiders, praise him, but it's going to spread this joy to all of the nations, the ones who aren't worshiping God right now. And maybe that's why our passage ends where it does today, in verse 17. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Now, this has been a running theme in this section of Isaiah, hasn't it? He's calling people to abandon these false gods, these fake idols they put their trust in. And now God is going to act in a way that demonstrates his power, that he truly is God, not the idols. And people the world over are going to be called to abandon their idols, and they're going to unite and sing a song to God the Lord. How should we apply this point to ourselves today? I mean, I think the application is pretty clear. We should sing. <laughs> We've done some singing, we're going to do some more singing. But, um, I mean, singing might seem kind of strange. It might seem like we're not doing much. It might not seem very productive, you know? It might not, it, it might not seem that it actually fixes much. You know, shouldn't we be out feeding the widows and the orphans? Well, yes, we should, absolutely. So why, but why is it that we also sing? Well, praise, singing, orients our hearts and minds towards God. It helps us rejoice in God. It actually fights against idolatry. Praise is very significant in the Bible. It's even a form of spiritual warfare. When God's people sing to him, it orients them to his new kingdom which is coming. It helps us get our hearts in the right place. Helps us unite our emotions with what we know to be true about God and rejuvenate us and prepare us to go out into the world and do all those other things which maybe seem uh, like much more productive. We need to come and rejoice and bask in the joy of who God is so that we can have the empowerment to go do all of those other things. So let's not miss this call to sing like so many others in the Bible and the practice it calls us to of praising God together in song and music. Okay, those are our three points. But before we end today, we need to think a bit about how this prophecy is fulfilled. Because maybe there's some partial fulfillments in the fact that God delivers his people from the Persian Empire, through the Persian Empire. And, you know, I mentioned he, maybe he delivers the Kedarites as well. Um, this widespread praise of God by the nations is not something we see by the end of the Old Testament. We can't really say that this is fulfilled. We have to wait for that. And as I've been thinking about this passage, the passage that really connects to it a lot in the New Testament is Romans 8. I had Andy read that to you. Um, and in the context of Romans 8, Paul is saying that we've been adopted as fellow heirs with Christ through the spirit of adoption who is given to us. So we are made Christ's brothers and sisters through this spirit that's given to us. 
We are called to suffer with Christ so that we can be glorified with Christ. And then in verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And why is that? Well, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And then Paul goes on to say that uh, the creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Isn't that interesting? It's a very similar image. Groaning in childbirth. Paul says the whole creation is groaning in childbirth. He's pulling the lens back to show that the creation of sin and estrangement from God afflicts all of creation, and the creation itself won't really be free until all of God's children inherit their glory. And by the way, that's not just Jews and Gentiles—that's not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. Not just people who are descended from Abraham physically, but people the world over who are called into the family of God. And that includes the people mentioned in our passage today. Interestingly, Paul actually—Arabia was one of the first places he went after he was converted, possibly to do missions work there. So in his own day, you were seeing people from these regions come and worship God. Anyway, Paul says that creation itself is groaning in the pains of childbirth, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, we groan too as we await this redemption, those of us who are God's sons. And why do we groan? Well, the reason we groan is that we have the first fruit of the Spirit. There's the Spirit again. The Spirit makes us God's children, and the Spirit is, is why we groan. And then Paul goes on to say that the Spirit groans as well. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So this groaning in the pain of childbirth is not just something creation does, but it's something that we do and that the Spirit does as well. It's the same metaphor as in our passage in Isaiah, used to describe the Spirit's care for this world. We could have the same sorts of questions here. Does the Spirit literally feel pain and suffering? I don't think we can say so. Does that mean that the Spirit is indifferent or uncaring? Well, I don't think we can say that either. Again, God is using metaphors that help us understand His care for the world. But you know, something has changed here that adds an extra dimension, and that is Jesus. The Son of God has taken on human flesh. You see, the backdrop for the Spirit's groaning in Romans 8 is our suffering with Christ, which leads us to glory. And Jesus really did suffer. Not metaphorically. You see, in Jesus, the one who is the creator of the universe truly suffers and dies on the cross. Because God can't literally suffer, the Son had to take on human flesh to do this. Hebrews 2 said that, says that he had to be made like us in every way so that he could suffer and be tempted as we are. And now, through the union of the Son with a human nature, we can understand God's love in human form. And also, it's a metaphor, but perfectly expressed in Christ's humanity. How do we see that? Well, we see Jesus weep at the tomb of Lazarus. When we see him sweat great drops of blood in Gethsemane, when we see him silently suffer before the Sanhedrin, when we see him call out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
When we see these things, we see a true revelation of who God is. We see God's love for the world, His care for the world expressed in God's determination to go so far as to even become incarnate, born in human flesh, suffering and dying for the sake of the world, for the joy set before Him. Because the Father rejoiced in us, because the Son rejoiced in us, the Son persevered through suffering to save us. And Romans 8 says that the Spirit invites us into this groaning as well. And that's because He's conforming us to the image of the Son. He's making us like Jesus. This loving groaning with and for the world, it's not something that comes naturally to us. Naturally, we're blind and deaf to it. We need the Spirit's work. We need the Spirit to form Christ in our hearts before we can truly groan with creation. That's why I think Paul says that they have the first roots of the Spirit, those who groan. But as we're shaped by this groaning, we wait in hope, the hope God's given us, that we're prepared to receive an immeasurable weight of glory when Christ returns. Okay, so I'm not going to unpack all of that. It's not a sermon on Romans 8. There's a lot there. I bring it up because I want to leave us with this gospel comfort this morning. When we see God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they have revealed themselves through Jesus. And in Jesus, we see the ultimate expression of God's caring for the world. And that's what our redemption ultimately depends on. God the Father so loved us that he sent his Son. God the Son took on a human nature, fully knowing the suffering and pain he was taking upon himself. Because he loved you. Because he rejoiced in you the way a mother rejoices over her child. Christ took all your sins and carried them down into the grave so that you could receive his perfect righteousness in their place. And where you and I have often been cold-hearted, indifferent to the suffering of other people, our Savior wept and grieved perfectly in our place. His grief was the perfect expression of his Father's love for the world expressed in a human way that we can understand, a way that we can come close to. And he sent his Spirit to mold us more and more into that human image of God. But there's more good news, because we don't always groan perfectly the way Jesus did. Romans 8 says that we don't even know how to pray half the time. We don't even know what to ask for. But the Spirit prays for us. The Spirit does know how to pray. He intercedes for us. He perfectly knows God and is known by God. The Spirit broods over this broken world in love and groans with it. This is a great source of hope and comfort in a broken world. This world is not abandoned by God filled with the Spirit who's laboring to bring it to a new creation through Christ. and something we can depend upon and rejoice in this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great reality of your love for us, which we can't understand. It's so much higher and deeper and wider than we can comprehend, but which you have come close to us to communicate, giving us pictures and images that we can understand, and ultimately giving us Christ, 
God made flesh, a human being in whom we can know you, our God. We thank you so much for this redemption you've given us, and we pray that you would press us more deeply into the image of Christ, that by your Spirit you would be making us more like Jesus, that you would be bringing us closer to yourself into a deeper relationship with you. I pray that you would be with each of us this morning, that for all of us, wherever we are, whether we feel your love deeply or whether we don't, whether we feel dry and cut off, I pray that you would press this truth of your love into our hearts, that we would know Christ, that we would put our trust in him, and know your closeness, your presence with us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since our passage has told us to sing, let's stand together and praise God, singing our hymn of response, For Your Gift of God the Spirit, 